Hello, this is the Untangling Anxiety Podcast. I'm your host, Betsy Russell. I am a mom of four children with OCD and other anxiety disorders, a wife of a husband with OCD, and a former elementary school teacher. This podcast is about learning to untangle our thoughts and worries, and then sharing this understanding with those we love. It's also going to be about the transformations that can occur when we invest our time and resources into making connections, being vulnerable, and ultimately finding healing for ourselves and our family. You can expect to hear from me each week. I will share with you actionable steps you can take to untangle your anxiety and live a more free and empowered life. I'll be bringing on guests, both people just like you and me, that walk the road of anxiety every day as well as mindfulness, parenting, and mental health experts. I started this podcast because several years ago, I could have really used someone to connect with who understood what I was going through, something to remind me I wasn't alone during those days when my family was so lost in the labyrinth of anxiety. I hope you learned something, let go of the guilt you are carrying, and find more peace and resilience. Now take a deep breath. It's time to start untangling anxiety. On today's podcast, I welcome Kaysen Garrett, a family friend and fellow mental health advocate. Kaysen has OCD and graciously shares his story and some of the personal details of his life with OCD. We talk about how it started, the devastation it created, and how he found knowledge and help to now live a full life that isn't controlled by OCD. His story will leave you more informed, empowered, and inspired. Let's get started. Hey, Kason. Hey, Betsy. How's it going? Good. How are you? I am good. Thank you for having me on. Oh my goodness. Thank you for being here. Super excited. Um, okay. Well, let's just get started because I will have a intro before this to kind of um give an introduction. But I would love to start just by hearing your story because, you know, this is called the untangling anxiety podcast. So I would love to hear your anxiety story, whatever you want to share. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, how far back would you like me to go from, from the very start? (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's a long story. I'll try to do a bit of a condensed version, but, um, in, so I served, I served a mission uh, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from 2017 to 2019. And uh, prior to going on my mission, I didn't have any mental health challenges. Um, I was like the happiest person alive. The thought of having some sort of anxiety disorder never even popped into my mind. And so I went out. I had a wonderful mission. I truly enjoyed it. It was uh, like the best experience for me. But when I hit my halfway mark, I started um, <clears throat> having a lot of intrusive thoughts, and I wasn't aware of what was going on. I I thought like, oh, this is what like a serial killer's mind must be like. Like, uh-huh. what if, you know, what if I, what if these intrusive thoughts that I'm having are truly who I am and like the things that I want to do? So, I was very concerned. I started having a lot of intrusive thoughts about. Um, the ability that I have to hurt people. So if me and my companion were on like a ledge of a building, I would get the intrusive thought, like push them off right now, do it. And I, I would just freak out in my mind and be like, what is going on? I, I, I don't want to push him off. I love right. this guy. I would never do something like that. 
And so those intrusive thoughts kept on getting worse. And so that would be classified under my subset of harm OCD. So that was probably the first kind of uh, OCD symptoms that I experienced. Um, as my mission went on, I started to develop a sort of re uh, religious scrupulosity. And I started to feel guilty all of the time. Um, I started to confess to my mission president for things that I didn't need to confess. Uh, you know, just never feeling worthy, never feeling like I was was meant to be a missionary. And so uh, at the end of my mission, my mission president said that when I went home, um, he recommended that I see a therapist because he, in his mind, he just thought I was experiencing a lot of like self-doubt, like, you know, self-esteem issues. Maybe I didn't tell him about the intrusive thoughts. I just kind of told him that I never felt worthy. Right. And luckily when I got home from my mission, uh, maybe it was just the newness of being back and the joy of being back, but OCD kind of left my mind for like a year probably, mm -hmm. which was really refreshing. And I don't know that it totally left, but I wasn't dealing with, uh, with daily obsessions and compulsions the way that I was on my mission. Right. Um, and then about a year into being home, I started getting intrusive thoughts again that were centered around harm. And that became very concerning. Um, and then finally I just opened up to my parents and I was like, Hey, I'm having all of these very disturbing thoughts. I don't know if they're like a part of me. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. And obviously my parents were shocked. Like they didn't, <clears throat> they had no understanding of OCD at that time. So they were just experiencing their son coming to them saying, Hey, I have these thoughts about hurting people, mm -hmm. or, you know? And, and uh, obviously they knew my heart. They knew what my values were. And I knew it too, but um, we decided to see a therapist the therapist uh, diagnosed me with OCD, but the, th the therapist had no, um, no ability to treat OCD. Like he tried to treat it just through talk therapy and it actually made it worse. Yes. Just tried reassuring me that I'm a good person and that these thoughts don't define me, stuff like that. Yeah. His intentions were great, but he just wasn't qualified to treat OCD. Uh, the OCD worsened significantly. I developed a dozen or so other subsets, some more extreme than others. Finally, I came in contact with you and your husband, Mark, and was told about the OCD and Anxiety Treatment Center and uh, ended up enrolling in their IOP program, um, spent a little over two months there, uh, five days a week. Sorry, go ahead. Nope, that's what, yeah, I just wanted you to specify how many days a week. <laughs> yeah, it feels like the military. Um, you're, you're there five days a week. It's three hours a day. And um, <clears throat> doing that program and graduating from the OCD and anxiety treatment center in a very literal way saved my life um, and allowed me to fully understand what my OCD was, how to combat that OCD. And though my life is not OCD free by any means, my symptoms have probably reduced by 40 to 50% compared to what they were prior to going into the clinic. And so, um, it's been life-saving and it's been a long journey and it's still a fight to this day, but it's, uh, it's one that I'm more optimistic about than what I was prior to going to the clinic. So kind of a long story. I apologize. No, 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 no. This is like exactly why we're here <laughs> for your story. I have more questions about your story. Yeah. So. I appreciate you letting me talk about it. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So I, I think what's so interesting about some of the pieces that, and I didn't know all of the details. What's so interesting to me is, is first of all, it would, what's kind of different from my experience with mm. my family, with my husband and my four kids is, well, and I guess it's a little bit similar to Mark, but because Mark, but I think he's had symptoms and intrusive thoughts his whole life. So I think that's really? so interesting um, that you did go the vast majority of your life without it and how shocking. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it is kind of interesting because you. you think it would have manifested itself earlier. Um what I was kind of told by someone that I I thought was very insightful is that uh, a lot of mental illnesses are sparked by some sort of trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we think of trauma as a form of abuse, like a very difficult event. Right. And that is often the case. In my uh, case scenario, trauma for me was entering a th like a third world country and yeah. um, having go going from living in the United States to living in Ghana, West Africa. And just that complete like 180 of a lifestyle and the things that I was comfortable with and used to like kind of going into that environment so suddenly in my young adult years, I think sparked something that um, I just hadn't experienced before. Yeah. And I don't I don't think that you're alone in that either. You know, um, yeah. I think it manifests itself differently, but I do think that yeah, those like sudden changes can be really jolting. I heard it explained by our family therapist that we oftentimes have genetic dispositions. Yes. Yep. These different mental illnesses or, you know, any kind of illness. I mean, this is like cancer and, you know, everything that we hear about and that, that it's like a light switch. The yep. switch is off for it could be off for the vast majority of our life and then something flips that switch and once once it's turned on it's very difficult if not near impossible to turn it off that's a great description mm -hmm. i couldn't agree more yeah it's uh it's really interesting the timing of when it kind of switches on for everyone um cuz I, I i mean i look at your children who all have ocd and all of them had it manifest in their youth mhm mm which I'm so grateful that mine didn't because I can't imagine going through junior high and high school oh. with with OCD. It would have been near impossible. So kudos to your children who are <laughs> extremely strong. Yeah, that's, well, that's admirable. Well, I hope that just like we talked about, this knowledge is so, so powerful. Like you said, it's been able to get you to a place where you can actually, you can function where you want to be here. Yeah, is, yeah phenomenal. Thank you. Yeah. It, it, it is, it is, uh, it's so refreshing to like have this different outlook on life after simply just understanding what I have. Um, even if I wouldn't have received treatment, granted, I'm very glad I received treatment, but like an understanding of what I had was like an amazing first step to me, just automatically feeling slightly better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's like really the first step of any mental health challenge is just simply understanding what it is. Yeah. So you talked about a little bit about like going to your parents and explaining this to them. And and I have uh, so much empathy and mm. my own personal experience with um, 
you know, someone with OCD coming to me and talking to me and not having any sort of frame of reference as to what the heck was going on <laughs> yeah, and how overwhelming that is. And I, one of the questions that, that I've been thinking about ever since I um, wanted to ask you on this podcast was your perspective as a kind of an adult child, your perspective with with your parents, but also with, with the people that were supporting you when, be, before your diagnosis and after, in what ways did they help? And in what, in what ways were they, of course, their intentions were to help, but it was not helpful. Cause like I said, I've, I've been there and I have yeah. a laundry list <laughs> of good intentions that weren't helpful, but I guess, yeah, for my listeners, I don't know, we can start with one and then move on to the other. But I think that can be such a, a beautiful thing to talk about because I think we're always intending to help. But with mental health issues, sometimes we're totally unaware of the pieces that are actually making it worse. A hundred percent. It's a it's a great question. And there's so many different perspectives uh, and different angles I could take that question. I think the first thing is, um, as I, as I approached my parents and even disclosed this to family members, which I think I probably didn't tell my siblings until several months after I told my parents, because it, it felt so, um, taboo yeah. and, and difficult to understand. So as I approached my parents, even that night, I like, I've never felt such an outpouring of love from my parents. Um, and, and that's kind of been a repeating pattern throughout my life. You know, my, my dad was, was a big part of my youth. He was my bishop in my church, you know? And so there were times where I had to go to him for issues and problems. And like every single time that I would go to my dad or my mom and be scared about what I was going to tell them every single time I was just encountered with like this warmness and comfort and joy and love that I can't even describe. Um, and so I think that's the the first thing that I would echo mm -hmm. throughout this process for other people is if someone um, feels comfortable enough to disclose that they have a mental illness, you know, or or that they're struggling with something like that obviously means they trust you. And the instant very first reaction has to be one that's centered on pure love. And that's what I experienced from my parents. So right off the bat, I was in a very good position. I didn't go to parents who were like, you know, that, that didn't want to support me that kind of shrugged it off and said, Oh, you'll get better. Or even worse. I know a lot of people have parents or people in, the, in their life that don't even really believe in mental illness. Yeah. So luckily, and thankfully I have parents that are compassionate, empathetic. And, um, what worked for me in my healing process was just knowing that I had an amazing support group of people that love me, my friends, my family, um, even people at work who knew about what was what was going on with me, like everyone was so kind all the time. And so that helped um, simply just loving me. Like yeah. Yeah. it's a simple thing, but it's the most uh, effective thing right off the bat. And then <clears throat> obviously there were a lot of things that they did that uh, enhanced my OCD. Yeah. And that's not a fault of, of them. That is simply not understanding the disorder, right? Until I actually went to therapy and until they kind of 
began that entire therapy process with me at the center, uh, they would often feed into my compulsions, right? So like um, a lot of times it was reassurance, right? So if I was having intrusive thoughts that I was a bad person, the natural response from my mom or dad was, you're an amazing person. Look at all the amazing values you have, right? And that was kind and it was what everyone would think would be the correct way to treat OCD, but it, it just fed the loop. Right. And, um, increase the amount of intrusive thoughts I was, I was getting. So, um, what didn't work was the, the constant reassurance, the, uh, the allowing of my compulsions for a time. And then it definitely transitioned after going to therapy to the point where my parents were very strict on what they would allow me to do. <laughs> and especially my mom. And that caused a ton of contention. Yes. Uh, it really, it, it, there was a time where me and my mom genuinely just didn't like each other. And, and I feel okay saying that because now I have such an amazing relationship with my mom, but in the midst of that, it really felt like my OCD made me feel like she was my enemy. In reality, she was trying to help me. Um, but it was just very difficult. It's, it's difficult navigating those family relationships. Well, and I think it's so hard that, you know, that was my experience too. I had a lot of pushback. Um, and what, what I noticed was because I was so dang good at reassuring and giving mm-hmm. those reassur- it was almost well I we know we know that OCD is I mean because it's a compulsive disorder in a very simplistic way it is addictive yeah and so that reassurance is feeding into that addiction so when you pull that reassurance away of course there's gonna be you know, this, this reaction for sure. Yes, I saw that from all my people. Yes. And, and our relationship, just like you said, each of our relationships has kind of um, struggled in different ways and then grown stronger, but yes. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I think that's, that's a part of the process, right? Like if, Mm -hmm. if it didn't, uh, if it didn't affect the relationship, I'd be concerned, right? Like, um, but I love that. I love that you phrased it in terms of an addiction, it it truly is an addiction, like any other addiction. If you uh, took away someone's alcohol or their drugs or, or maybe an addiction to gambling or pornography, like if you took any of that away from that individual, like there would be contention, there would be stress, there would be, you know what I mean? Yep. And so when you take away my compulsions, I would react the same way someone that had any other addiction would react. And so yeah. It's really, it's great when you frame it in that way. Cause I think, I think it helps people understand it a little bit better. Right. And yeah, that, that there is going to be a time of discomfort and contention, but yeah, it's for a greater, a greater cause. And yeah. And yeah. Part of the process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. So yeah, in- do you mind if I ask you a question? No. So <laughs> I'm curious, did you find that your relationship with your children or Mark was more like contentious around OCD, like as a mother or a wife, if you don't mind me asking? No, 100,000% worse as a wife. It was way harder. Yeah. 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 I can see, I can see how it would be, but Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I could see it going either way. Yeah. And I wonder too, because yeah, all I have is my own experience, but, um, 
but yeah, it was, it was a lot harder and, you know, and, and Mark has, um, relationship o OCD. So, mm -hmm. and that's a whole nother conversation, but <laughs> <laughs> I have that one as well. Yes. I, I, yeah. It's, so it's can, that one is, that one is tricky. And that one is. Is, is, um, is tricky to talk about. And maybe, maybe we can talk about that for a yeah. minute because I, I think what's so interesting it, and I do, there's not enough time for us to talk about all the subsets, but I would like to talk about some of them because everything's so unique. And just like, you know, I think I've heard you say before, and I've heard, you know, experts say before that OCD latches on to that, which is most important to us. Yep. And so, um, it can, it can latch on to anything. And so, so often we have these stereotypes of, you know, OCD being centered around germs mm -hmm. or, um, you know, fear of something bad happening or something like that. So, so this relationship OCD, I think it was new to me, absolutely. And so intricate. So can you talk a little bit about yeah, yeah. your experience with it? So relationship OCD is probably one of my lesser um, subsets in terms of how much it bothers me. Mm -hmm. However, at particular times, it's been an issue. Um, I think I have the similarity within that subset as Mark, which is kind of like a fear that my partner would leave me, right? Yeah. I think that's what Mark's kind of centers, centers around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely... Um, that's definitely something that I've experienced, like a fear that, you know, Carlisle, the girl that I'm dating could find someone better, find someone more suited for her. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a huge part of it for me is the um, being decisive as to like knowing that the person I'm dating is the one for me. Yes. Mm -hmm. So like I have a girlfriend we've dated for a few years. I love her. I, I do want to marry her. It's in, it's in the plans. It's in the works. Um, <laughs> But kind of there's various factors for, you know, why it has taken a while for us to get married. One being the fact that it's very difficult for me to like completely say, yes, this is what I want to do. She's the right one. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the moment I get to that, that point in my brain where I come to the conclusion that it's right and that it feels right, I'll have all these intrusive thoughts that will come to my mind about, well, what if this bothers you? Or what if you don't like this? Or what if there's someone better out there that's suited for you. And so it, I, it's very difficult for me to feel comfortable in a relationship mm -hmm. um, because, and I think there's a religious aspect of it too, with my scru scrupulosity of like, well, what if God's truly not telling you that this is the right, right. person, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so in the clinic, um, a lot of my exposures were, I had to go around and show pictures of Carlisle to people Um in the clinic. And then I had to tell them something I didn't like about her. Yes. So, yeah, uh, it was very funny. I like, I, you know, I, I tell this, the, these people in my group, like, yeah, I really don't like when she does this or, mm -hmm. you know, she has this, that kind of bugs me from time to time. And as I did that, it kind of retrains your brain to realize that, um, everyone has faults. Right. And, uh, it allows you to see, uh, to get to a point where you understand that not everything has to be perfect, but it took a lot of exposures for me to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, I see that what's happening is your brain, because we know with OCD, it's ever searching for certainty. 
And so yes. your brain was <clears throat> searching for like had to have all your ducks in a row. Like it mm -hmm. just, it has to be certain. And what's so difficult about relationships is you're in a relationship with another human. Yeah. <laughs> you're both imperfect and you can't predict. You cannot it, predict what's going to happen. Oh, exactly. Yes. I mean, it, you said it perfectly. It's gotten to a point where for my exposures, I literally had to say there is a chance that I'll get divorced at some point. Yeah. Yep. Like there's a, there's a, there's a chance that 20 years down the line, Carlisle will discover something about me that she doesn't like, or I will discover something about her that I don't like. We very well could get divorced if we get married. And that's the reality of life. Right. And like embracing that uncertainty is so liberating. Yes. Because, yeah. because it eliminates the, um, the whole, like, it has to be the one, you know, and that's yes. the only one, like it kind of just allows you to be like, okay, two people can make it work. And if it doesn't work, so be it, you know? Right. And and then puts the power back to you. Yes. Because when you are relying on needing certainty, you're totally throwing away all your power. You know, you're just saying, yeah, oh, yeah. It's it doesn't have anything to do with me. It's just, you know, whatever happens. Yeah. If yeah. Mark's listening to this podcast, Mark, <laughs> Betsy could leave you tomorrow. <laughs> that could happen. <laughs> who knows <laughs> and you know okay so that is that's was one thing that was so interesting to get used to and what i have tried to help my listeners get more and more used to is these these statements like what if statements yeah that seem so cruel yeah they seem very really insensitive. cruel to me and yeah insensitive maybe is a better word and um yet that is what brings back like it it helps to unravel that that OCD. So we would yeah, would say things like what if my wife leaves me? What if I get sick? Mm -hmm. What if I look stupid in front of the class? What if um there's an earthquake tomorrow? What if yeah. um I leave the oven on and a fire starts? You know, all of these things. But yes, when I al have always felt that the relationship ones do feel the least insensitive because I do believe so Ivy, my nine-year-old has a little bit of relationship too. And, and of course it's surround, it's centered on me too. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That's tough. So I've got two people in my family that, that have, yeah, relationship OCD that's focused on me, but. So is hers like a, a feeling that you wouldn't love her? Like that, that she'll will, disappoint That you? I will leave and not come back. Oh man. I know. And with a nine-year-old kid, it's like, how do you say to him, maybe I won't come back? You can't do that. You, you, you yeah. can't, I can do that with my 40 whatever something year old husband because mm -hmm. he understands that process, but we couldn't do that with Well, her. I'm glad that you recognize that. Otherwise, yeah. well, I feel like that would be very harsh. Like yeah. <laughs> there's certain exposures that are tailored right. for certain ages. Exactly. And we have wonderful therapists to help us with that. But and that's kind of, yeah, the point I'm trying to make is that they appear insensitive, but that's the beauty of exposure therapy is that it is when done properly and done with a trained therapist, it's absolutely 100% tailored for yeah. your brain for, you know, and, and also is always lined up with your value system too. Yep. You'll never yep. be asked to do something that, you know, goes against your beliefs and 
and yeah, what you, it might be hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like uh, that's a great way to put it. Right. Is an exposure is only effective if it, if it's something that's borderline realistic, right? Like mm -hmm. right. If, if you go above and beyond and push it to the extreme, then the exposure has the opposite effect and it just makes it worse. Like yeah. if the therapist told Mark, Hey, I want you to go cheat on Betsy tomorrow. Right. That's like, that's not going to do anything, you know, <laughs> or in yeah. my case scenario with, um, I, I mean, like I have so many, like I do have contamination OCD. That's a really bad one for me. Mm -hmm. And my, my therapist isn't going to tell me to like put my head in a toilet bowl and flush it, right. you know, right. yeah, like that is the extreme. And that's kind of the hard thing to understand is where do you draw the line? Like, where is the, yeah. the line of like, okay, this is effective. And then this is beyond, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've talked about on my podcast before the whole, so in, at the clinic, they called it SUDS, but I call it the anxiety meter Yeah. You know, the, the zero to 10. And I think uh -huh. that's such a wonderful way to, you know, find that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And then use, and I've talked about middle path and stuff too. So yeah. Middle path. I haven't heard that term in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I practice it, but I haven't yes. heard it for a while. Yeah. Yep. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it is. So the what would you so one of the other questions that's kind of been brewing for me that I feel like you could really add a whole lot of value for my listeners is what so now that we've heard like some of your story, people are listening and they think, oh, like that sounds like me or, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. they kind of identify with this conversation. So what would you tell someone that, that was feeling like, you know, maybe they had like, Oh, I have these intrusive thoughts. Oh my gosh. Like this is a thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. How do they move forward? That's a good question because I do think everyone experiences some amount of intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. Like when I talk to people about my harm OCD and I'm like, okay, I see a knife in a kitchen, like, yeah. And thoughts pop into my head that I could use that knife to harm someone. Yeah. Um, and I tell that to other people who are like, oh, I've, I've had that before. And I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. So I'm not, you know, I'm not yeah. the only one. However, the, the difference between OCD and then people that just have occasional thoughts is that thought doesn't leave your head, right? It goes on loop. And, mm -hmm. um, most people that have those intrusive thoughts are able to, you know, think about it once and then put it away and say, Oh, I would never do that. Yeah. Yep. I, I see the knife and I'm like, wait, do I want to do that? Am I a murderer? Do I want to hurt people? Is that something I'm interested in? Anyway? So sorry to kind of get derailed there, but if someone came to me and said, I was having intrusive thoughts, you know, I would ask them the frequency. I'd ask them if they're able to stop, you know, thinking yes. about it, if they can, do other tasks, if they can go about their day or if it consumed their mind. And after having that conversation and kind of assessing the frequency of what's going on, like um, I would definitely open up and talk about my experience and, and recommend like uh, recommend therapy. And the hard part is, is I want to reassure that person like in the moment. Yes, I know. <laughs> like I want to be like, you're not a monster, I promise. <laughs> but, and, and I think that's okay maybe right off the bat. You know, mm -hmm. just be like, oh, hey, you're not the perhaps to validate instead of reassure, like you're not the only one that experiences these things. Yes. Like I've experienced these things. It's not abnormal. Give them and, facts. And give them facts mm -hmm. without telling them like 
without making the OCD worse by feeding the loop, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I love that clarification that you made because yes, like learning all of this, I'm totally a person where if I, <laughs> if I'm standing on a bridge or somewhere high, I have a vision of falling off every time. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, yes, my, I definitely have intrusive thoughts and I love the clarification that you made that of frequency at which that it's happening. And mm -hmm. if it is keeping you from moving forward in your life and, and completing other tasks and doing the things that you want or need to do like that. Exactly. Yeah. A huge clarification that needs to be made for sure. Yeah. Because, you know, you tell someone that you have OCD and their immediate response, I've had this a million times is, oh my gosh, I think I have it too. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I have, I, I have those same weird thoughts and I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, I appreciate you trying to validate me. You don't have OCD, you know? Right. Yeah. And when you actually have the ability to sit down with someone and have the conversation, help them realize that their occasional thought is not the same of my 1000 thoughts that I have about that right. particular thing, yes. you know? Mm -hmm. But I think what's so valuable about that and like one of the biggest lessons to be learned is talk about it. Like, yeah, exactly. Talk about it. Cause like you said, you, you kept it in your brain for a while and it just gets bigger and bigger and beats you up more and more and being yeah. able to talk about it and then get the help that you need is so valuable. hundred percent. Yeah. I love that so much. Thank you. <laughs> so, okay. I am looking at my notes. Okay. So one of your greatest gifts is storytelling. I feel like you have many great <laughs> gifts. <Kason>. Thank you. That's, <laughs> that's really sweet of you. You're a wonderful podcast host. I remember you before your mission. Uh huh. You always. You have been a wonderful story. Didn't you have like a YouTube channel or something before your mission? I, I, what was it? Like technology? What would you even call it? I did like vines and like Twitter videos, like dumb comedy <laughs> stuff with my buddies. It was really cringy now looking back at yeah. it, but so thank awesome. you for saying that. That's but really you sweet. Are, you just, uh, you have a talent for just bringing out like just the good in this world. And I just love mm -hmm. it and humor and lightheartedness that we all need. So thank you. With all of that storytelling, really, like, can you just tell us some of your OCD stories? I'm not even kidding. Like, just yeah, what is coming? Because I do feel like that storytelling, that is where people's are like, oh, my gosh. You know what I mean? Like, it opens uh -huh. us up, like, things that we've never even considered. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So just whatever comes to your mind. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I have a million stories. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I think this would be something that kind of, I have funny ones and then I have ones that are sad. I'll actually tell a sad one because okay. I think it actually spreads a bit of awareness for what it is. Um, so a big reason that my OCD resurfaced post-mission was uh, the start of the pandemic in March of 2020. Yeah. So, um, the, obviously COVID began, it was happening, it was being spread. I was pretty good for like several months. Uh, and then in December of 2020, my grandfather passed away from COVID and, um, it's like something shifted in my mind and my mind immediately told me like this virus kills people yeah. or has the ability to kill people in my in my grandpa's case, he had a lot of pre-existing conditions. 
regardless, it still killed him, right? It's a serious virus. Yeah. And so my mind immediately viewed that as a threat. And my mind told me that I, if I didn't go to every length possible to avoid contracting and spreading COVID, if I didn't do that, then I wanted to contribute to the spread of it and kill people. And so um, that made me extremely anxious throughout the pandemic uh, to the point where if I had like a slight tingle in my throat, if I had a, uh, a tiny bit of congestion or a headache for five minutes, it was, it was immediate. I would go get a COVID test. Mm-hmm. And obviously the obsession is that, okay, what if you do have COVID and you spread this and you kill people? The compulsion associated with that obsession was, okay, if I get the test, I'll be relieved that I don't have it and I can carry on with my day. Yep. And so throughout the the last two, three years, I've taken oh, probably several hundred to a thousand COVID tests. Uh excuse me, several hundred COVID tests, thousands of dollars worth of money mm-hmm. of COVID tests. Yeah. Um and I still struggle with it. Uh, I took a COVID test last week, I think. <laughs> um, but in my mind, like it, it, it's such a real threat to me. And I know most people definitely at this point are like COVID, whatever, like I'm not worried about it anymore. Yeah. My mind just simply cannot think that way. And I've gotten so much better. Uh, I, I limited the amount that I take tests. I will postpone when I want to take a test. I'll postpone uh-huh. it a few days if I want yeah. to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's gotten better, but it's still not 100%. But when I tell people that, that that was um, an obsession and compulsion for me, they they get shocked. They're like, oh my gosh, this person's gone to Walgreens a million times, gotten the at-home test, has taken it, like, and spent thousands of, of my savings on COVID tests. It's kind of funny when I think about it sometimes. It's also really, it makes me sad because it's a lot of wasted time and energy and money. Yeah. Um but that was a big one for me. And and that has kind of led to me having very severe, which it's probably my most severe subset is contamination of OCD. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not centered around me getting sick or contaminated. It's centered around me spreading it to other people and hurting other people. And so, yeah, like COVID is a very difficult thing for me. I have a ton of um, very bacteria, funny, um, like contamination species is a uh, very difficult thing for me. And kind of so like I have a hard general, time with like, kids sometimes because I'm like, one that always comes dirty, to mind like, is <laughs> dirty diapers um, in the clinic. All that they stuff. made me do this multiple times. Um, <laughs> cooking I say they made me do it like I nearly impossible. I agree to do it. Kind of felt worry about cross-contamination. But, you know, what if this was raw? Yeah, it is a fine line. It's raw steak and then I don't wear my clean properly and then I go shake suds and they get E. coli or my anxiety meter got to a That's how my brain processes In the clinic. So I would go with the the TA. Is that what they're? The CA, not teacher's assistant. I know, yeah. Clinical assistant. I would go with the CA and I'd go into the public bathroom that everyone uses, Mm -hmm. uh, including kids that are gross and don't know how to use the bathroom very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would sit on the floor of the bathroom right next to the toilet with the CA and then we would play Scrabble. So, Oh my gosh. She oh. would <laughs> she would dump all these Scrabble tiles onto the bathroom floor. Oh. And I would have to sit there and move all the tiles and and I oh and the, and the, and the goal was for me to do that and then not sanitize my hands oh my. afterwards. And I remember 
I was I w- I sat there afterwards um after the, doing that exposure and I just bawled my eyes out with my hands like this because yes. I hadn't I was like I'm not going to touch anything and I can't sanitize what am I supposed to do and I was just I was bawling I was like I can't do this and just thinking about how absurd like that exposure was um in the moment especially when I tell people that don't have OCD they're still like that is seriously disgusting yes (laughs) and it's actually interesting I'm so glad I did it I still have moments even today where I think about that particular exposure yeah and it helps me do exposures now where I'm like okay I did that that. and it was fine like not every time it will be fine right maybe stuff will happen maybe I do cause a, a chain event of people getting sick Right. But I survived that. I can do this exposure today that involves contamination of some sort. Right. I love it. Yeah. And then one other funny kind of funny thing um, is in the clinic I have. Oh, I think it's deemed uh, we called it responsibility OCD. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's um, this need and it kind of feeds into my harm OCD, but it's it's this need to like protect everyone around me. Um, and make sure that there are no, uh, reasons or no ways in which someone around me could get hurt. So my mind is constantly scanning for threats of some sort, Mm -hmm. um, physical threats, any sort of threat where, uh, someone could engage with that threat and be injured by it. Mm -hmm. And so this causes a lot of, uh, hyperfixation on things like carbon monoxide, um, uh, uh, alarms in my house. Yeah. Or like in, in Carlisle's house, like there's been dozens of times where I've been like panicking and been like, you need to check your alarms to make mm-hmm. sure they work. If I don't remind you and you have carbon monoxide in your house and you pass away, that will be on me because I didn't remind you to check your alarms. Right. Mm-hmm. So I focus a lot on like alarms and, um, a common compulsion for me was like praying for people when they drive. Like if I don't pray that someone's safe when they drive, then they're going to get in a car accident and it's going to be my fault. So <clears throat> I'm always looking out for things that could be potentially harmful for people. So in the clinic, um, it was really funny. They would make me like set up like obstacle courses and then I would have to make people go through the obstacle course. And the whole intent behind the exposure was, okay, if someone goes through this obstacle course and they like jump over something and they trip and they fall and they break their neck. Yeah. That, that's it a- up that's a possibility and you set them up and you made them do it. Right. And so I would, I would do obstacle courses. I would put like hazards in the hallway. So I would like put chairs around corners so that when people walked by, they would trip over it. Yeah. And I would ask people to get on chairs and like examine a fan for me. And the idea of them getting on a chair and falling over and breaking a bone, some stuff like that, where, And, and the funniest one that kind of fell into that realm in the clinic was, uh, there were automatic hand sanitizer dispensers. Mm-hmm. And so I would go around and I would tape the sensor on all of them so that when people put their hands underneath, nothing would come out. Right. And so in my mind, it was okay. If I prevent people from getting hand sanitizer, I'm going to cause this massive spread of germs and people will get sick and die. And it will be my fault because I covered up the sensor. That was like a double whammy. They got it was both. a du- it was a double whammy because it was like responsibility and it was sick or contamination, right? Yes. And so doing that, it was, it sounds oh. so funny when I talk about it, but in the moment it was extremely stressful, um, but really, really helpful. And yeah. that's the one that I 
I feel like I've improved the most on is the responsibility one where I'm like, mm -hmm. uh, there's so many threats out there and I can't protect my loved ones all the time. Like, mm -hmm. uh, people are going to get hurt. Like that, that's the reality of life. Like we live in a dangerous place. We live in a dangerous world. Um, I don't need to remind Carlisle every night to lock her windows and doors before she goes mm -hmm. to bed. Like she's an adult. She can do that. And if she doesn't, so be it, you know? Right. And yeah. coming to that conclusion has been very difficult, but it's been uh, very rewarding and it's definitely allowed my mind to be a bit more peaceful. Yeah. I just, I think those stories and everything are like it, that um, really paints a picture for the difference between just a simple intrusive thought and then where it goes and how. Yeah, definitely. You know? And and I think it's, it was really a, just a great example because it shows because those exposures, like most exposures, I remember when Mark first went and he came home and he told me, I I actually, I literally remember laughing and crying at the same time because <laughs> yeah. like, because it is, it's so absurd, but, but I, I felt so sad at the same time because it was so real to the yeah. people there. Like and you're like Mark was so living. Intense. Mark was living his worst nightmare for three hours a day. Oh, absolutely. And your absolutely. children who went went through IOP were doing the same thing. So it's like, how can you how can you not cry over that? Like seeing someone you love go through the most pain every single day just to feel better. Like no. it's yeah. it doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that because what you said at the very beginning of the podcast um was that you first started with talk therapy and it actually made it worse. And I would yes. like to re-emphasize that that talk therapy i have participated in a lot of talk therapy and it has a beautiful place in our life mm. but understanding with ocd in particular and other anxiety disorders talk therapy isn't gonna get you better yeah sure. yeah mm -hmm. and i love that you say it does have its place right oh, like it does um, there's so many instances where talk therapy is absolutely needed. And there were even benefits for me going just to like talking to someone at least made me feel like I was making improvement, I guess. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't like it was a total lost cause, but at the end of the day, uh, it didn't, it didn't tackle the root of OCD whatsoever. Well, and I found Olivia and she'd be okay with me saying this, you know, she did IOP my adult daughter yeah. When she was in high school and um, she went back to her therapist for an appointment, like a follow-up appointment, just because mm -hmm. things were kind of brewing and bothering her. And her, her therapist said, you know, they worked through a few things, but she said, these other things are no CD. You need to go to your family therapist for these. Really? Things. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So I, yeah. So I really do think, yeah, therapy's not just one and done. And mm. one size fits all for sure. There are different types and yeah. hundred percent. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting case. Cause I think in most scenarios, people would just kind of lump if, if OCD was your main diagnosis, they would lump yeah. everything under that umbrella. Yeah. It's kind of a, I mean, that's like kind of good for me to hear. Cause I think I, I sometimes have other issues that aren't <laughs> OCD related and I'm like, maybe I should just go see a regular therapist to talk about <laughs> things like yeah you, you know what you name it but I know it's so true it, it's interesting and I think once you have been diagnosed that is it's hard to kind of tease that out but I would hope 
yes, that our therapists could kind of all work together and help us just like doctors, we would hope would help us <laughs> direct us yeah. to the right place. Right. Definitely. Not always, but yeah. So well, do you have any funny stories of oh. helping, um, your family with exposures? Anything that comes to mind? Um, what are some of our funny ones? Oh gosh. Okay. I do. So, and I haven't shared this on the podcast before. So, <laughs> so Ivy. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. So Ivy, my now nine-year-old, but you know, she was seven, eight when she was doing, she was seven when she was doing IOP. Um, She was terrified of moles, not, not the rodent the skin condition really yes it it okay. had a, she has disgust ocd so oh, yeah, yeah. her disgust ocd she could not say the word um and she would not look at like it, it was painful for her to look wow. at moles so sad so so interesting so yeah and we i the first time i discovered that she might have discussed because olivia has discussed as well yeah is around halloween time the our our jack-o-lanterns out on the porch or whatever had mm -hmm. mold on them and we went to go pick them up and she looked at it and i could see she has she had this physical like we've talked mm. about like physical reaction to looking yeah at all the mold in there. And she's like, oh, I can't, I can't. And I was like, oh, I remember that was one of my first like red flags. Like, oh, okay. Something's Cause, up. Because Ivy was the last one to be diagnosed. So yeah, so moles. So Mark and I were just talking about this the other day. So Mark and I would alternate going to IOP with her and we wouldn't be able, we wouldn't go in with her, but we would go and drive Drop her, her off and, and, yeah, yeah. and stay. Sometimes she was able to do exposures where she had, she left the clinic and she would need to go to stores um, like pharmacies or dollar store or something like that. And she did this with Mark. I didn't ever do it with her, but so Mark had the the pleasure <laughs> of experiencing this with her, but she had to go up. So this little seven-year-old kid had to walk up to a sales associate or whatever and say, do you have any mole cream? <laughs> that is saying, saying the word mole and then she had to also ask people go up to people at the clinic and say do you have any moles can i look at them that is hilarious <laughs> i mean yes it's 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 interesting how it can literally target anything yes yes you know like people think it falls under like you know several different umbrellas i've never heard anything like that and i, I know yeah. I know OCD well at this point. I've never heard moles like that's that's yeah. It's sad. It's sad. It it breaks my heart that that's a a fixation. But yeah. at the same time, so it, you have to look at it through the lens of humor. Like the mole cream is just really oh funny. Oh my gosh! Yes, and Mark trying to hold a straight face, like he described to me that the associate or whatever you know Ivy would ask, and the associate would look at him like you know questioningly, and he'd just smile and nod. <laughs> <laughs> and the associates probably like why isn't this father asking for the mole yes. cream like, <laughs> and, and this is like what is going on like, where's yeah the, where's the hidden camera yeah that's awesome <laughs> that's really funny yeah so i know it is it it is crazy and just like you we've got a hundred other ones too and i i do like you said i appreciate and love 
bringing the humor into it. There's a time and a place for sure. There's a time and a place for humor. You're not ready for humor, Mm -hmm. but man, when you are, oh my goodness, does it ever uh, bring healing? It's like, it's like for parenting too. I love hearing jokes about the absurdity of parenting. (laughs) 100%. There's a, there's a BYU speech by president Iring and he talks about, he, he says something along the lines of like the best people in life are those that can like view their predicament and then laugh about it. Something of, of that sort. And that's always stuck with me. Like, yes, process, process the initial issue with all of the, the range of emotions of sadness and grief and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But if you can get to a point where you can make light of it in some capacity, at least for me, it's extremely helpful. Yeah. And that's wow. kind of how I process everything. So maybe that's not the right answer for everyone, but. Yeah, I do think there's a place hopefully for everyone though, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I, ha- I have two more questions in mind. And okay. the first one is if, and when you have children, how, how are you going to face when, and if they show signs of OCD. What's that going to look like for you? Have you thought about that? I kind of think I have. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I kind of think you probably have. if I so like, I've definitely talked about this with Carlisle, because Carlisle has her family has history of depression. So she has depression. She has an eating disorder. She has anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then I'm bringing hardcore OCD to the table. Yeah. yeah. So like, we've got to we, we've come to the conclusion, like, if we get married and have children, the kids are going to have something like yeah. <laughs> it's kind of inevitable. Yeah. Um, and maybe not, if not, right. that would be great. But mm-hmm. um, I've definitely thought about it and, you know, I, I feel extremely comfortable with it. Like, um, you know, we kind of talked about this on my, my last podcast uh, that we did together. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if if I do end up having children that have some sort of, of mental health diagnosis, I feel like it will just give me an opportunity to love them in a way that uh, some people don't get to love their children, you know? And that's not to say that it's a, a requirement for any deep sort of love, uh, because there's plenty of great relationships that don't have mental health at the center of it. But if I do have that opportunity, like, I will just love that kid beyond what they can even comprehend. And and I think that I'm really prepared for that and suited for that. And there's a lot of there's a lot of things about parenting that I'm not suited for. I mean, having kids in general is like my biggest is going to be my biggest exposure ever because yeah. of the responsibility OCD along with uh, contamination. Yeah. So it even it makes me scared beyond belief to have children, but to help them through struggles like that, I would consider like an honor and a privilege and ability, and, you know, something that I would love to do as a parent if you know they end up struggling with those things yeah i love that that's beautiful thank you it's beautiful and my last question is like is actually just an open-ended one like is there what would you say like is there anything that we haven't talked about that is on your mind or that kind of just sits heavy on your heart as long as far as just your journey and being a mental health advocate and, you know, anything that we haven't talked about? Yeah. Yeah. That's a a good question. I think there's, 
<clears throat> there's one thing that's been on my mind quite a bit lately. Um, and that's, and this is kind of a cliche term at this point in, uh, in the realm of mental health, but it's, it's a cliche because it's true. And the statement is that, uh, healing or the healing process is not necessarily linear. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot of ups and downs, uh, and peaks and valleys. And if you're overall, if you're trending in the right direction over an, an extended period of time, then you're progressing and you're, you're having success. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been on my mind because, uh, in fact, when we did our interview on Monday, that had been the hardest OCD day that I had had in months, probably. Wow. Uh, even right before we did the interview um, over some contamination stuff. Yeah. And the last two days, there's been a trickle effect um, because of that. Mm. And it's it like today's been a very difficult day um, for OCD stuff. And so, like, I have probably you know, out of, out of, let's say a month, I probably have two to three difficult, like really difficult OCD days Mm -hmm. where I'm like, I can't do this. This is extremely hard. And that means that there's, you know, 27 really good days for the most part. Yeah. Um, but I have to remind myself that just because I graduated from IOP, just because I'm very aware of my diagnosis at this point, uh, that doesn't mean that I am not entitled to bad days. Um, every now and then because they're going to happen. And I've had a lot of uh, doubts and moments where I'm like, okay, you're slipping again, or this is going to get worse again. Or, you know, you can't, you can't manage your OCD. You can't get over it. You can't be perfect. And I have to remind myself that uh, this is going to be most likely a lifelong process. And throughout my lifelong process, there's going to be days where I really struggle and that's perfectly okay. And I don't want that, but that's the reality of life. And um, and so I would say to anyone that's struggling with OCD or perhaps depression or anxiety or any variety of 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 mental health challenges, um, your your stage to a perfect mind, whenever that may come, which is probably not in this life, maybe in the next mm-hmm. life, but that journey to that perfect mind isn't going to be a straight line. And I think that needs to be accepted and understood and, uh, and not to be discouraged when you do have those peaks or excuse me, those valleys. Um, because that just means that you're human and that you're experiencing the full range of emotions that you should experience and that you should feel. And so I think that's what I would say. Um, that's been on my mind a lot the last few days. And, uh, I think it's been a good reminder to me. I love that. Thank you, Kaysen. I would just like to validate that 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 is true for every single person in my house too. Absolutely. Yeah. And I actually very close to the same frequency too. Hmm. You know, we sit through a month and we have about 27 good days and <laughs> a sprinkled few bad in ones. there are a few bad ones. Yeah. Which, you know, when you have six people, that kind of sucks. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but well, thanks for... It is what it is. And yeah, yeah, that's so, but and that's really validating to hear you say that too, because I'm, I'm not quite sure I've ever really stopped to think about it. I think sometimes when you don't stop to think about it and bring it up like you have, those bad days just overpower all the good ones. And, and you can't yeah. see, not necessarily the pattern, but you, maybe the pattern, because in a sense, that pattern kind of helps you to understand, oh, okay, this is kind of like you said, what's to be expected or accepted, you know? 
Exactly. I, thanks for thanks for validating that. I you you'd be surprised at the amount of days you go without thinking about what used to be constantly on your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, um, I was talking to my sister a, a week or so ago, and I was expressing that I've I've never been better. Truly, like, like I'll go days where. I don't think about, um, raw meat, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. and like a year ago or two years ago, that would have been on my mind 24 seven. So mm -hmm. it allows you when you recognize the bad days in the bad moments, you kind of also get a perspective of like, Oh, I haven't experienced this for a while, right. you know? And that's maybe why it feels so like bad. <laughs> yeah, moment, exactly. Maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, I love that. Well, thank you, Kason. This has been just amazing. And I know will be very eye-opening and helpful and informative and inspiring and entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And so I'm so grateful for you. So very grateful for you. Thank you, Betsy. I, I, I expressed it on the last podcast. I'm so grateful for you and Mark. And I think what you do is incredible. And I'm, I'm very grateful I could be on the podcast. So thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. I failed to let Kaysen tell you how to find him on social media. He has an Instagram account and a podcast where he talks sports, Utah jazz, everyday interesting things that are going on in his life, and sprinkles of his real life with mental illness. He is refreshing and just plain entertaining. So look for his links in the show notes to enjoy more of Kaysen. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining me, Betsy Russell, on the Untangling Anxiety Podcast. I'm so glad you're here and honored that you've taken the time in your busy schedule to join me for honest conversations about anxiety. It brings me so much joy to shine the light on anxiety. Will you leave a rating and review? Just scroll down to the bottom of this episode, hit the five star, and write a little comment about how this has helped you. This helps my podcast get seen and help others. Also, I'd love to see what you're doing while you're listening to this podcast. So snap a selfie and tag me at Untangling Anxiety and post it on Instagram. We'll see you next week.